welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, good things can happen. Hi, I'm Mara Davis, and if you don't get out there and get your voting plan, we cannot be friends. And I'm Jen Jordan, and I am happy to announce that my vote has already been accepted. Me too. I feel, I don't know, it's like a burden has just been lifted. I feel exactly the same way. I want to give a shout out to Ballot Tracks. Totally. They did a great job. It was almost, so you basically sign up for ballot tracks when you do your absentee ballot or your mail-in one, and it will call you, it will email you, and it will text you (laughs) to let you know. And it did all of that on on the same day, and I was like, all right, already, thank you. So all of you can just go to ballottracks.com, B-A-L-L-O-T, tracks, T-R-A-X.com. Sign up and they'll tell you when your absentee is mailed out, when it is received, and when it's accepted. So it kind of gives you some peace of mind, especially if you're a little bit worried like I've been. Me too. Did it feel good to vote for yourself? Yes, it did. (laughs) Absolutely. I wish I could have voted for you. I'll move uh, so I can do it next time. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. So there's been a lot of news. It's been a big week when we left you last week. uh, Obviously, the president had just gone to Walter Reed. It was a huge thing. And as we sit here recording today, the news has not slowed down. Obviously, the president's condition is still kind of unknown. It's I mean, if anybody's been watching social media and his Twitter feed, there have been these videos that have gone out that in some ways are nonsensical. There have been interviews um, with some of his favorite Fox personalities where he is losing his voice and coughing um, in the middle of them. And then there are these other tweets that are really a little bit concerning in terms of, you know, what's going on with him. So, you know, let's probably keep the uh, president in our prayers. So I think it's it's uh, not only him, but I would like to keep some of the other people, the over 34 people that have been in that cluster testing positive, really uh, linked to that Amy Coney Barrett uh, ceremony that happened. Chris Christie, we're still waiting on a status from him. I'm a little concerned. All of the people that work within the White House, and I think a lot of people don't realize the butlers, the chefs, the housekeepers, the security. No, there's like a full-blown, it is like a workplace in and of itself, and they don't live there, right? They go home to their families. And so um, it was interesting because I, I saw something on social media when the president went back to the White House and he took off his mask, and somebody said, oh, well, he's home, right? So we all take off our masks when we go home. But the White House isn't like that. The White House has a lot of folks working there. And, you know, I mean, we should. We should absolutely keep all of these people in our prayers. Absolutely. So we're going to keep up on that. There have been a lot of developments, even in pop culture. I mean, it seems that pop culture and television production has been able to keep people safer. Uh, Where the shift in Saturday Night Live, where their original guest, Morgan Wallen, Uh, This is how social media will really get you. I mean, it really gets people. This is a country singer who was living his best life, partying down last weekend, and the picture surfaced of him partying, and Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live said, uh, 
listen, you can't be on the show, but uh, we'll give you another chance. I think everybody can make a mistake. I think everybody has their rules and their limits as far as what is safe for them and what's safe for others. But when you're putting a whole TV studio at risk or putting the White House at risk, uh, that's a different level. And I really, really liked Morgan Wallen's apology. Here's a little bit of it. Um, I'm in New York City in a hotel room. I was getting ready for SNL this Saturday. And I got a call from the show letting me know that I will no longer be able to play. And that's because of COVID protocols, which I understand. I'm not positive for COVID, but my actions this past weekend were pretty short-sighted and they have obviously affected my long-term goals and my dreams. I respect the show's decision because I know that I put them in jeopardy and I I take ownership for this. Uh, I'd like to apologize to SNL, to my fans, to my team for bringing me these opportunities and I let them down. So obviously he's been replaced with Jack White and uh, it's going to be interesting, Jen, to see how, how pop, I mean, this COVID affects everything. Now it is in the White House. It's a Saturday Night Live. It's everywhere. No, I mean, it. but I think it kind of demonstrates that you know, no one is immune to this virus in the sense of we all have to be following the protocols. We all have to be doing as much as we can to limit um, the risk to ourselves, but also to other people, whether they're people we love or people that work for us or people that we work for. And so I think that the the super spreader Amy Coney Barrett event shows you know, you can be the most powerful person in the world and it can still take you down. It sure can. Uh, we also want to make note of Governor Whitmer in Michigan. Wow. Gretchen Whitmer, who is an inspiration, I, I think, to any woman who wants to get in politics, whether you're Republican or a Democrat, she has been so strong. And the idea that there was a Frankly, I'm going to call it a terrorist plan to kidnap her and police officers and FBI sting. Hearing and reading about this reminds me of the movie Black Klansman a little bit, how the FBI agents sort of infiltrate these these hate groups. Right. And they're, they're uh, undercover. And that's basically what happened here. And this is some scary stuff. Well, and I think what's scarier is that in terms of the timeline, it's tracked back to when they were having uh, those those protests, those demonstrations at the Michigan uh, State Capitol where the uh, the far right groups were angry because of, you know, having to wear a mask or, or businesses shutting down or, or, you know, just name any of the restrictions that were put into place to try to protect people and you know, you'll you'll remember that that President Trump in some ways praised them and, and put on Twitter things like liberate Michigan. It's almost exactly about the same point in time when, you know, FBI and uh, the agents started to hear chatter about this plan um, to really kidnap her and, and to kill her. And police officers, too. The president of the United States stood before the American people and refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups like these two Michigan militia groups. 
Stand back and stand by, he told them. Stand back and stand by. Hate groups heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action. When our leaders speak, their words matter. They carry weight. When our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions, and they are complicit. This is... A, a big beef that I have with a lot of politicians at the moment, because if this were uh, six Muslims, if this were six black men, uh, if this were six Antifa, or as my friends in Portland call it, Antifa, they say that everybody's pronouncing it wrong and they would know because they live in the heartbeat of it you know the messaging would be completely different. And this is shocking to me that more people are not calling it out. Now, the senator in Michigan did immediately. I mean, this is the governor of Look, the state. this should be, this, this, nobody should even skip a beat. And I've seen some stuff on Twitter from people in this state who basically pointed the finger back to her saying, well, it's her fault because, you know, she said negative things about the president. Give me a break, right? I mean, this is the governor of a large state in the United States of America who was targeted not only to be kidnapped, but to be killed. And then to your point, all of the people that are protecting her were put in danger. I mean, it's just incredibly, incredibly irresponsible to kind of, you know, push those people or kind of encourage them to do stuff like this. So we'll be watching that story. And I love her. I think she's fantastic. We know I, they call her Big Gretch. Big Gretch. I love it. Uh, um, I love Cecily Strong's impersonation of her on Saturday Night Live. It's hilarious. And our thoughts and, and hearts are with her uh, because, you know, that even if you have all the top security in, in the world, you still got to go to sleep at night when you get this news, when you're getting that briefing, knowing that here's the plan of the target against you. Right. They were watching you. They were videoing you. You know, they had it down. I mean, thank goodness for law enforcement. But I think you're exactly right, Mara, that we've got to call it what it is. These are domestic terrorists. And the head of the FBI, who's originally from Atlanta, Christopher Ray, he has he has said this time and time again before Congress and they really pose one of the most significant dangers that we have right now in the U.S. All right, we want to move it to another topic. And this one really, really got me. And I'm just going to call it the Atlanta Red Wedding. It was uncovered by the AJC and some great investigative journalism headed up by a friend of the show, Greg Bluestein, who was able to let all of us know that Mark Meadows, the now chief of staff from the White House, uh, formerly con- he was a congressman in North Carolina. His daughter held a 70-person wedding in May. This was May 31st. This was at the height of COVID. We were all still on lockdown. And there was social unrest where the mayor, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, had a curfew, a nine o'clock curfew, and the wedding went until 10 o'clock. And there has been no comment from the governor on this. I think 
the worst part of it is that at the same time, um, so many of us in this state, in this city, were being denied really important, you know, life events, grieving events, whether it's um, having funerals for loved ones that have passed. Weddings, you know, I've got friends whose, you know, daughters' weddings were canceled. And so, you know, the idea that we're suffering and we're having to really sacrifice in the state and that this guy can kind of just swoop in and break all the rules, it, 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 it just doesn't wear very well. It sounds to me like Mark Meadows' daughter pulled a Veruca Salt. <laughs> <laughs> and I was re-watching a little Veruca Salt, and this is what I imagine is what happened. I want a party with roomfuls of laughter, 10,000 tons of ice cream. And if I don't get the things I am after, I'm going to scream. Daddy, I want it now. Now, I did see, Jen sent me a link, uh, some photos of her wedding that were out in the public domain that someone else had shared um, on Twitter. And P.S., they were also in the New York Times. So it's not like Jen was snooping around being a creep. Right. I'm not not that into it. And if anybody is going to be a creep, it's going to be me. So (laughs) Jen is a state senator. She has to keep keep it classy. Uh, But it's weird because I was looking at their photos from this wedding and my first reaction was, wow, I feel like I'm invading on her privacy as a bride and their privacy as a family. And then it just made me very, very mad and very, very upset, not only for the people that have missed weddings, funerals, events, but for the people who had to work those events. It was reported in the AJC. Some of those people were nervous to go home because it lasted longer and there was that curfew going on about how they all wore masks and people, and you see in the pictures, no one's wearing masks. No, nobody's wearing a mask. I mean, it looked like a fun event, to be quite frank. I mean, they're dancing, they're, you know, they're eating, they're drinking, they're celebrating. It's what people do at weddings, right? And it looked like an awesome event. But that's kind of what made me the angriest because, you know, so many other people we know have been denied you know, those celebrations. But yet at the time we're recording, uh, none of our elected officials or Mark Meadows has said anything about this. And I don't think he should get a pass. It it is extremely upsetting. And, you know, I've been hearing a lot of stuff from people in the event business too, because a lot of people who they had weddings, they just lost their deposit. That's it. So you do want to root for local businesses. And in the case of the Biltmore, I mean, they are an event facility, Um, But I got to say, I don't think I would do um, anything there again. Well, let me let me say this. The thing that the big question for me is I know a lot of these businesses that and event facilities or whatever and the like, the weddings, the events were canceled because they couldn't go forward um, per the governor's executive orders. And then even at that point in time, you know, with the shutdown, you know, the curfew of nine o'clock, you know, it couldn't have gone forward. So my question is, the Biltmore and the people who run these businesses are a lot savvier than that. And so it just makes me question, why did they think that they could go, you know, forward with this for this particular bride. 
Well, some people have said that the event facilities are adhering to the guidelines of restaurants. So that is how they are able to get away with it. And weddings have been going on because they can take the line of, well, restaurants can be open. So that may be the legal gray area on how they're getting away with it. I had I got a comment on my Facebook about the CEO of Delta apparently had a wedding. Um, and again, this is hearsay. I, I don't have confirmation of this, but there were a hundred people, but everybody, it was at a resort and in a bubble. So I guess people must have stayed there. Maybe everybody tested. We don't know the details of that. And that, that really didn't get outed. And as much as that may not be great, if true, it's different from having an elected official. I, I find it very hard to believe that the governor didn't know about this. Well, you know, I'm hoping that he's going to come out and actually acknowledge it say it's wrong, you know, call it out for what it is and stand up for the people of Georgia who who did have to cancel their weddings and did have to basically put their lives on hold. You know, there there is an element of fairness to this. And, and to be quite frank, just some guy from North Carolina coming in and being able to do what he wants to do while the rest of us have to stay locked up in our houses just doesn't just doesn't feel right. Well, yeah, because he probably couldn't do it in North Carolina. North Carolina was very strict at that time. They weren't doing the Republican National Convention there. Uh, Roy Cooper is the governor there, and he really laid his you know, line in the sand. And so they were probably like, "Hey, Georgia's open, woohoo!" Yeah, that really doesn't say a lot of good things. It sure doesn't. So. I would recommend calling the governor's office. I did that. If you follow my Twitter, um, or you could just Google it and you could find the number. I don't have it in front of me. And I felt bad because the person on the phone was so nice and I didn't want to take it out on them. So if you do call an elected official, please be nice to the person on the phone. Yeah. The administrative folks that are handling these calls, you know, they tend, well, they're supposed to be nonpartisan and they're there you know, to work for the state of Georgia and to work for the people of the state of Georgia. So just remember that, you know, even if you have a problem with an elected official, the people working for them, you know, just be kind. Another thing that we want to talk about is Georgia's 14th congressional district. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is getting nationwide coverage because of her connection to QAnon. And Charles Bathia from The New Yorker has written an explosive article about what it's like going to her events, uh, what led to her rise and uh, political notoriety, and a whole lot more. So we're going to talk to him about that. All right, guys. So Charles Bethay has been contributing to The New Yorker since 2008 and became a staff writer in 2018. He has published dozens of Talk of the Town pieces, often on political subjects, including the creator of Barack Obama at gmail.com. Previously, he was an editor at Outside Magazine and a writer at large for Atlanta. His work has also appeared in Grantland, The New Republic, The Wall Street Journal, GQ, Rolling Stone, and Wired, and he lives in Atlanta. Welcome, Charles. Thanks so much. Well, Charles, you have written a couple of explosive articles, but the one that just came out is on Georgia District 14. Marjorie Taylor Greene is someone who has gotten a lot of attention nationwide because she is linked to QAnon 
and conspiracy theories and just a whole lot of of fire surrounding her. So um, this story that you wrote is about her. Why did you want to write this piece? Um, I mean, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of pieces because she's connected to QAnon and there's, there's sort of both a clickbaity interest in that, but also I think from our perspective, a very serious uh, interest. I mean, it, Q, QAnon is sort of laughable until it starts coming into the halls of Congress. Right. And she, she's the first one who, I mean, there, there are a few dozen candidates um, who have some sort of relationship to QAnon around the country, but she's the one who's almost assured of going to Congress, unlike the rest of them. So I wanted to learn more about her. I mean, we knew the QAnon videos. We knew those existed. They've been reported on where she was online talking about this stuff, talking about pedophilia and child trafficking and cannibalism and Satanism and how Democrats are all connected to this stuff. Um, But there was obviously more to her than that. So I wanted to go into the district, learn more about her, learn more about the people who support her, but also the Republicans in the district who are very concerned about her and about the way that she's pulling the party in this sort of crazier direction, much crazier direction, even crazier than, than Trump, as Democrats would see it. So yeah, there was just a lot of fodder there. So yeah, it was about her, it was about the district, and about QAnon to some degree. And I tried to, to write a story that encompassed all that. So one of the interesting things to me about her is she started to run in CD6, the congressional district, the sixth congressional district that is currently held by Lucy McBath. And then she kind of chose to then hop into the, the 14th congressional district race after Tom Graves announced that he wasn't going to um, run for reelection. And so, um, you know, what did you think about that? Like, and, and did she say anything about that when, you know, you were around her? She didn't. I mean, she, she chose not to talk directly to me at all. That's um, shocking. Which was, which was telling. <laughs> but uh, and we gave her plenty of opportunities, especially once I learned things that were concerning, troubling, and she might have wanted to comment on. But I mean, as I think it's pretty obvious that she, she was an opportunist. And she's not alone in that. There are plenty of politicians who are opportunists on both sides, but she was clearly saw an opening in the 14th um, that made for a much easier path to Congress for her. The, the folks there, it's very white. It's extremely conservative. It's poor. It's not uh, well-educated. Unfortunately, these kinds of things add up to a perfect sort of backdrop for a candidate who has ties to something like QAnon and is also willing to say hateful things um, and has said hateful things about ethnic groups and uh, all sorts of other minorities. And so I think she saw an opportunity there. So she took it. I'm Marjorie Green, and I approve this ad. They destroyed the NFL. They're destroying NASCAR. They're burning our cities and destroying our history. Socialist Democrats are dividing our country, claiming America is a racist nation. They're wrong. America's the greatest country on earth, and I'm running for Congress to keep it that way. President Trump needs strong conservatives like me in Congress to save America and stop socialism. Well, and she had a lot of money. She had a lot of money. She, she, her father um, started a very successful construction business that she and her husband, who now runs it, bought about 18 years ago. And yeah, she, she was able to self-fund her campaign. And, um, and that gave her a leg up. And so she entered that race with a lot of money. 
and she immediately seized on to Trump's coattails, basically parroting him in a lot of ways, a lot of his slogans. She would, you know, she drove a Humvee around or had someone drive a Humvee around that said, save America, stop socialism. She really, I mean, to her credit, um, we have to, I think we have to give her some credit for seeing what would work and jumping on it very quickly. And she did that and she got out ahead. Well, there's a couple things that stood out in your New Yorker article, which, by the way, everybody uh, can read it now. It, it, it's out. One thing was uh, when you say people wanted the Trumpiest person, I feel like a lot of these people are probably maybe good people at heart. Were they good people? Uh, you know, they're just like country folk. They like to go to church. They're, they have very small communities. This is Dalton, Georgia. So there is businesses and industry there. But what I found alarming is this QAnon rhetoric, I mean, it borders on cult. It, it's cult. It is pure Satan worshiping. Yeah. Did you ever get any definition on like who's like, is there a QAnon Bible that 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 Marjorie Taylor Greene is following? Like, or is it they just make up stuff as they go along? It's uh, I'm not going to call myself an expert on QAnon. There are definitely articles that go more deeply than mine into QAnon itself. But it's a very much an evolving, disparate hodgepodge of beliefs and theories and conspiracies and. And, and basically people wait for these drops, these, these drops from Q online. They're sort of like, like clues and morsels of information. And from those morsels of information, additional aspects are added to the theory related to inevitably Democrats and how they're trying to, to tear down the country and, and, and enslave children and et cetera. So I don't know that there is a Bible. Um, and if there, if there were one, it would be constantly updated. So, you know, there are a few like foundational beliefs. Democrats are bad. Trump is good, essentially. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I never ran across any sort of written in one place thing. And that's kind of what kind of the genius, the evil genius of it is that it's it's constantly changing. It's, it's interpretable in any number of ways, like written text, but even more so, I think. So my question is, who is who is dropping these clues on the Internet? I mean. You know, I know actually Q and kind of the conspiracy theories behind it um, have been identified by the FBI as a, you know, as a problem in terms of security and a risk for, for people in the U.S. So the question is, is somebody trying to figure out if there's like seriously like the whiz is behind like some kind of curtain or is yeah. this literally just it's just ping ponging all over the place and we're not sure. Well, there I'm actually midway through a podcast that goes into a lot of this stuff. Um, well, uh, well, a few different things. Rabbit hole is one that touches on QAnon. There's another one whose name I'm forgetting. That's more focused on who Q is. I don't have the answer. It's a huge, it, that question is driving all sorts of journalists nuts right now. Um, there are theories, there are pretty, some credible theories about, very conservative businessmen who were involved in 4chan and these other online chat spaces and seized onto this identity of Q because they controlled the platforms, even though someone else had actually maybe created Q. And now because they control the platforms, they control the Q persona and the messaging. So you know, I, unfortunately, I don't have a better answer than that for you. But there, there's a couple people that are apparently like suspected of being Q, 
I think one of them lives in Hawaii or something in a fortified compound. Um, so bizarre. Yeah. So in your article, Charles, there are a lot of whoppers in there. And I, I just want to go straight for the money shot. And that is apparently uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. It has been revealed that she has had several affairs and so did you know this when you started writing your story or did this come to light in your uh investigation no i did not know and then actually i was i was almost done with the story when i it was basically like going through fact checking when i learned about that stuff so it did not contain those revelations basically i thought you know it was worth learning something about her crossfit period she had worked as a crossfit coach uh you know, like uh, eight or nine years ago when she was sort of phasing out from her family's business, seemingly was just bored, according to people who, who, who interacted with her at the time. She had a lot of money, a lot of time on her hands, and she just lifted weights a lot and hung out with these coaches. And I called up, I remembered that I knew a CrossFit, a guy who worked in the CrossFit world in Atlanta, uh, who I had interviewed like years ago. I called him up. He happened to be the grandson of Ann Cox Chambers the billionaire who died at a hundred this year. And she's very, she's very much like a mainstream, was very much like a mainstream Democrat and the donor to the democratic party. He, on the other hand, was much farther to the left. He, he calls, you know, the, the two party system, like a, a bourgeoisie, you know, electoral trap or something. He's advocating not voting at all. So he's not, which is, I bring that up because, He's not somebody who was going after Marjorie Green because he actually wanted her opponent when she had an opponent to win. He's just somebody who thought she was just full of shit, a total hypocrite, because he witnessed, as he told me, and then as, as I confirmed by reaching out to some of these people who confirmed it to me, that when he knew her less than 10 years ago, while she was married with kids, a family, a, an outspoken Christian, um, going to a, a mega church in North Atlanta, had just been baptized publicly, that she was having, as he put it, blatant, wide out in the open, um, extramarital affairs. And as he said, he's like, you know, whatever, people have affairs, but this person having an affair or multiple affairs is significant because it completely undermines what she's um, purporting to be. And so the hypocrisy was what really bothered him. And so he told me about that. Side note on him, he's now up in Massachusetts where he's growing cannabis and training, <laughs> tra training leftists to use military weapons. Oh, fantastic. Uh, he's getting ready for the, the revolution. There's just so much to unpack here. There's a lot. It's a lot of strands of, of Georgia and it's weird. But those people <laughs> who probably had the people who you interacted with, you went to several of her events that I interacted with? Or no, the, the people that you interacted with in oh. doing this story in The New Yorker, I don't think that a revelation of her having, having affairs will move the needle with them at all. Do you? No, and I mean, and as, as uh, some of the more establishment Republicans in the district told me, the ones who supported the people who were trying to, to get the nomination instead of her, um, John Cowan was the main guy who was rivaling her and who had on paper everything you'd think would win in that district. He was a, I mean, he's a neurosurgeon. He's well-spoken. He's a former college football player, deputy sheriff. He buys into Trump's rhetoric, but he doesn't go much farther than Trump does. 
um, and, and she crushed him. And people affiliated with his campaign told me, you know, your article is going to come out. It's going to tell the truth about her, but it's only going to probably fuel the fire for her to get more money, um, you know, more support. because She's just going to blast it out as fake news. And that's what she that's what she's done. That's what her lawyer's doing. Lynn Wood's doing. So, you know, I mean, in that's in that circumstance. I don't know how what you do about that. I didn't I didn't write the article with an agenda. I wasn't trying to take her down. I was just trying to, to write a true story. It so happens that the details are kind of damning. But if she's able to just spin it around like Trump does and turn it into ammunition, I mean, what I don't know what to say about that. That's just sort of where we are now. No, I think it is where we are. And I think it's kind of, I think it's a little bit sad. And, and it's also one, one other piece that I thought was fascinating was listening to those people, decry, these Republicans in the district who didn't like her, decry her use of the term fake news, while at the same time telling me they're, they're, they're ready to vote for Trump again. So it's like this cognitive dissonance I thought was really interesting. They were, I mean, Cowan in the article tries to, and, and I like, I thought he was, he was, um, he was a nice guy. He was straightforward with me, but he too was, he, he was sort of walking this, this, this tightrope when he was trying to help me understand how what she does isn't okay, but when Trump does it, it is. And his, his reasoning was essentially a chief executive isn't held to the same standards as a member of Congress. And he said, we wouldn't want 435 Marjorie Taylor Greens. <laughs> and we, you know, we, I mean, sorry, we wouldn't want 435 Donald Trumps, right? That, that just doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, it, it's hard to wrap your head around. What do you think these people will do? Like, look, oh, the election's coming around the corner and she is more than likely getting elected. So you've got these scenarios of. Well, she basically is. She's going to get elected. The Dem but, got but, pulled from the ballot. Right. But, but Trump may not be elected. So how, what do you think is going to be the result of that for that? I think even if he is, even if he is elected, what people are telling me is, is and maybe this is sort of wishful thinking, but people who know more about the inside dynamics of the Republican party than I do tell me that they think she'll just be sort of pushed into a corner and told to keep her mouth shut. It's sort of hard because, because these are Republicans who recognize the danger that she presents to their party if she does anything beyond just vote on party lines, if she, if she says something, she's liable to cause a problem. And maybe those same words coming out of Trump's mouth wouldn't matter as much, but they're worried about it coming out of her mouth. Trump gets a pass, right? But she, she probably won't get a pass nationally. So I think if Trump loses, I mean, she, she'll, she'd be totally marginalized. I can't really see her doing much. Um, I don't even really know because she wouldn't tell me, wouldn't answer my questions. But I asked her, you know, what committees she wanted to join in Congress. She, I don't know that she could she could name them. Um, I don't know if she's thought that far ahead. I really don't. I mean, it's it's all about getting there, and then once she gets there, th- she thinks she's just going to be sort of duking it out with AOC. I don't I don't know how that's going to work. You know, I think the bigger concern for some Republicans that I've spoken to in the state is that, you know, you've had these mainstream Republicans basically tell you, well, you know, she'll get up there and we'll put her in her place. Right. Well, they tried to do that in the election. I mean, they were all behind Cowan, um, even if they weren't loud and proud about it. And I mean, she whooped them. So, but she did have, she had uh, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows 
and she had Trump essentially. I mean, she had the big names nationally. She didn't have the local names, though. You're right. She didn't have the local Republicans. Well, so my point being, I don't think that she's the type of person who you can tell just to get into the corner and be quiet. No, I agree. I agree. She's definitely not. But that's what they're they're saying they think will happen. So. Yeah, good luck with that one. There was a little dust-up between uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene targeting AOC on Twitter. Yeah. And AOC, Andrew, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, always has the best clapbacks because it was like she had spare, spelling errors in her tweet. And then she's like, have fun writing legislation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that that's where where I really think it's it's going to get interesting. And we also noticed Jed and I. You noted in the article that she was close with Mark Meadows' wife, who now is in a Georgia political firestorm. What's their yeah. relationship? With the Met, yeah. I mean, I couldn't tell you much beyond it. Seems like they're close just based on the phone call that that Marjorie said she took from Debbie Meadows before the, the Rome event that I attended. I was writing about, I went to a few of these gatherings. I wrote about the reopening of the Republican party headquarters in Rome. And she was late. She was the, the like headlining speaker, but she was late showing up because she had taken a call from Debbie, I guess, congratulating her on winning the race ahead of the actual vote because Kevin Osdale had just dropped out the Democrat. He had just been served divorce papers. So you know, kind of a crazy twist. Um, the, the Democrats have had a hell of a time just fielding candidates who can even make it to election day. Well, that's, I think, why I want to bring her up because, you know, her husband's the White House chief of staff. So does that mean, you know, the call is coming from inside of the House as far as an endorsement of QAnon? They all mm. seem to be aligned and it, it's, it's, it's really crazy. I mean, Meadows is a guy I wrote. I wrote a big story about him last year and about his relationship to something called creationist paleontology. It was very, very strange. And I won't go into all the details, but he's he's somebody who not long ago appeared in a documentary that tried to, quote unquote, prove that the earth is only a few thousand years old. And he went on. This is before he was a member of Congress. He went and I'll send you the link to this story. Maybe you can. I don't know, share it as well. It's oh, pretty, I want to read it. <laughs> Send it immediately. It understand how he could how he could buy into maybe some idea ideologies that don't quite you know make reasonable sense. So anyway, he went into these dinosaur digs with these creationist um, paleontology twenty years ago, just before he went to Congress, and he's he's on film um, purporting to be pulling an allosaur skull out of the ground that is then used as again quote proof, even though it actually doesn't add up what they're trying to do with the skull because the skull is extremely old, but they have people who come in and just say things about this stuff that don't make sense to try to prove claims that don't make sense. So he, I tied him, I tied Meadows to all that in that world. And so that's sort of where he's coming from, right? Like he has a shown ability to buy into ideas that are on their face, kind of nutty. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's a lot. It's a lot to unpackage. <laughs> a little side note on Mark Meadows: he um, he sold my family a, a cabin in North Carolina 25 years ago. All right. And he used to be a real estate guy, right? It's like full, full circle moment, right? <laughs> I know. I was in the back of his Jeep as a 12 year old going to look at property. Uh, so, oh okay. So it seems <laughs> like 
already and you and this is I'm not like revealing anything because you've put this all out on your Twitter account. It seems yeah. like the Marjorie Taylor Green camp, they've already been kind of threatening you. They were they've already like yeah. I don't, I don't want to say threaten. They've already j- trying to intimidate you. Okay. They've been trying to intimidate you and I do want to I want for you listening to know the amount of extreme fact checking that goes into the New Yorker, I learned a little bit of this with re- listening to Ronan Farrow's podcast and reading his book and how intense it is. We've been trying to talk to Charles now for several weeks, and this has been pushed because of fact checking. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Are you intimidated at all by any of their rhetoric? Because I mean, I would be, uh, but you're not. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I maybe I should be a little more than I am. But we have not only fact checkers, but also lawyers at Condé Nast that owns the New Yorker, who you know whose job it is to make sure that nothing, that no defamation appears in a story, and that the facts. You, they, they're going to look over the shoulders of the fact checkers just to double and triple check to make sure that everything is totally bulletproof. So I, I looked at the, the threats or the intimidation, which you know were just these little texts from from Lynn and then a, a tweet later, just sort of saying that the story was all agenda driven lies and the New Yorker should be careful and I should be careful of what we do, et cetera. You know, the the uh, I guess the suggestion being if we're not careful, he's going to come after us, but when we sent him a long email with all of the claims we had that we had independently verified about Marjorie, including the affairs, including the fact that she is a staffer who was arrested eight years ago for stealing thousands of hydrocodone pills. He's now the guy with a gun who follows her around at rallies. There was another bit about another uh, lawyer of hers that I didn't put in the story and I won't say his name, but he has a criminal background as well. All of this stuff we had to run by him and he just did, gave one of those blanket, oh, this is just BS, liberal, whatever. But he couldn't refute or deny any claim. So if he didn't do that and he didn't actually threaten def- like a defamation suit, it's just bluster. He's just, he's, just do, you know, he's just tooting his horn because he can and he thinks that might have an impact. But it doesn't because we know what we know. So I'm, I'm not actually too worried about it. I'm more, I guess I'm more concerned, though, about just some sort of nut jobs in Georgia who might hop in their, their trucks or whatever and come down and try to, you know, find out where this guy, Charles, lives. Watch your back, Charles. <laughs> so out of everything that you learned when you were doing this story, what was the one thing that surprised you the most? Um, it didn't really surprise me that she, that she was not the kind of Christian that she purports to be. So that was not a very much of a surprise, nor did it surprise me that people who work for her have sort of shady pasts. I guess the surprising, there wasn't, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot surprising. Um, there's like shocking stuff that's yet not surprising, if that makes sense. Like it's it's insane to like hear somebody say a certain thing to you about QAnon or whatever, but you've already, I already knew enough about QAnon in Northwest Georgia to expect that. So it, that wasn't so shocking. I guess what I talked about earlier with these, you know, intelligent, conservative, establishment Republicans unable to accept her, but nonetheless go, go with Trump, that kind of cognitive dissonance that I brought up, that actually was sort of one of the most surprising things to me. Um, and, I, and I think some of them were, as I pressed them on those questions, 
they started to falter a little bit and sort of back away and like not want to touch it. And, and a few of them, even in the last few days, as Trump has appeared to sort of melt down more, have suggested that they might not even go vote. Um, they might sit out the election. I don't know if that's true, but you know, that I think hearing them work through that stuff or, or not choose to work through it was what was the, the sort of the most interesting and perhaps surprising piece. But all in all, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was weird, but not shocking. Well, it seems like they were nice to you for the most part. Yeah, well, helps to be a, a white guy. But uh, yeah. uh, I, you know, and I can, I'm a seventh generation Atlantan if they ask. So I can, I can use that credibility if it matters to them. But they were fairly nice to me. Um, I'm also pretty comfortable at this point, having covered a lot of campaigns in areas, you know, even more deeply Southern than Northwest Georgia. Let's say like Roy Moore's stopping ground in Alabama. Like I've gone to events where Steve Bannon has spoken and Roy Moore has spoken where people are wearing shirts that say threatening things about journalists. Like I've been in, I guess, scarier places than her rallies even. Although, although those rallies did not have the added danger of coronavirus. Mm. So, you know, I should have probably been even more careful than I was reporting in these spaces where she was hosting events where people weren't masked, there was no ventilation. And I just had on my one, my one normal mask that I use because I can, it's cloth, it's like a cloth one, but it's not an N95. And I can talk, I'm comfortable in it, but probably it's not as secure as some masks. Maybe I should have had the, the full body suit, although that, that could have been weird. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, I think sort of rambling a bit, but th- that, that probably piece of it is, is the part that was scariest to me, um, was the coronavirus portion of everything. You know, what's been interesting, or I should say what's been hard as um, a Democrat running for office um, during COVID versus what Republicans seem to be doing in terms of, I mean, they're just kind of going full bore in terms of campaign events and rallies. And mm-hmm. it really seems like, you know, definitely up in uh, Northwest Georgia that's happening. Yeah. And there, of course, you know, I want to point out there are Republicans up there in office like uh, Chuck, Chuck Huffstetler. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, he's 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 actually he's he's a really good senator. I mean, he's a yeah, he's he, a Republican senator from Rome. Yeah, and I was going to say he's kind of the, the the exception to the to the picture that I'm painting here. He's he's somebody who you know showed up and stood outside on the sidewalk to peer into. And this is depicted in my story to peer into Marjorie's event to see what the heck was going on, but was not willing to go in for his own safety, his family's safety, and the safety of those that he works with at a hospital where it's his day job. And, and he was able to tell me, and as I reported in the story that he can't support green for that reason and many others. So, you know, there are still, there are still Republicans up there that you can disagree with on policy who are still good people who are still, um, you know, they're still doing the right thing regarding coronavirus and, and other things. And, so yeah, Chuck Chuck was somebody I was glad to put his voice in the story so that you get a fuller picture of the world of being a Republican in that part of the state. It's not it's not monolithic. While he couldn't support Green, he was in fact going to support Trump, correct? Right. He said yeah. that, but you know, and I'm I'm not going to say that that's not true, but he was very hesitant. He was very hesitant to say it in any sort of emphatic or clear way. Uh, I kind of pushed him. 
And eventually he said, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. But it, I wouldn't put him in the like enthusiastic column. Um, I'm not, not to be an apologist for his, for him or, or anybody who wants to vote for Trump, but he, uh, he certainly was not a guy who was wearing the MAGA hat. Okay. So I don't know, maybe your story that came out in the spring and late spring, uh, in the New Yorker about the Lovett school. Did you get more intimidation from people on that one? Because that was explosive. And for, for those listening, uh, our guest Charles wrote this incredible story about an outbreak that happened at an elite private school in Atlanta. Love it. And uh, there were, had been whispers of this and it was just a colossal fail. Um, and you pretty much exposed not only the school's failures, but maybe the CDC's failures too. I think, yeah, I think there were some missteps by the, by the school and, and, and the CDC, but it was really more, um, looking at parents and how the, these folks in these communities, a lot of them refused to play ball when it came to contact tracing. And it actually, I, I tweeted about this. It was sort of an oddly a foreshadowing of now what's happening in the white house. Yeah. People yeah. who think they're sort of above the, the practice of contact tracing, which is the mo- one of the most essential ways that we can slow this thing down, obviously social distancing, mask wearing, but after those things fail, you need contact tracing. And, you know, for a variety of reasons that came down, I think in a lot of cases to privilege and elitism and social class and all this sort of stuff, um, they were unwilling to, to, con- to, to do the contact tracing, to even take the calls from these people just saying, hey, I'm not going to put your name anywhere out there. I just need to know who you've been interacting with because we heard that you're sick or your kid's sick. So I got access to the public health department's um, internal emails about the, this this incredible struggle to contact trace beloved outbreak and told the story of of just how difficult it is. And uh, I think that one, when you, you brought up initially the, I don't know, like the reaction of people involved to the story, in a way that one hit closer to home for me because I grew up in a nice neighborhood in Atlanta family who went to a country club, like I, instead, my dad still does. And that's his world in a way. Um, and he know he knew a lot of the people involved in the story and he was hearing about it at his country club. And, um, I, you know, so I like some of those people I think felt betrayed in some way as if I'm part of, as if I had some, some sort of, uh, have to have an allegiance to them, which is, is ridiculous. I, I grew up where I grew up, but I tell true stories about any community I come in touch with. And, so anyway, it was it was a little bit weird to get calls from people that knew my family and were just sort of like, how could you? That kind of thing. That is just, I, I, I mean, you've said, said it all there. Well, we appreciate you telling stories, whether it's about our community or others. And, um, you know, yeah. just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, uh, Charles. Really appreciate it. By the way, your parents must be so proud. I mean, working at The New Yorker, that's a big deal. My mom uh, posts all my stuff. I have to tell her to slow down with it because people are people are getting overloaded by it on her Facebook page. <laughs> That's but okay. If my, Spread if my the dad love. knew how to use Facebook, he probably would do it too. Well, everybody should follow Charles Bethay on uh, on Twitter. It's B E T H E A. Yep. 
And he's so great there. Your work is so incredible. And we are so grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. And everybody should not only read Charles's work, but subscribe to The New Yorker because journalism is more important than ever. And it's people like Charles who are out there doing the real work. So we appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charles. Everybody subscribe to The New Yorker. Give it a click. Read the story. You won't be disappointed. All Everything Charles does is, is fantastic. Well, it has a lot of kind of political history, too. That's what's great about The New Yorker articles, because they kind of go that extra mile to add context and, and kind of depth. And so, you know, it's not just you come away with a real impression about Marjorie Taylor Greene, you really kind of get a sense of the area um, from a Georgia political perspective. And we love that. All right. So other things to talk about, we wanted to bring up the North Carolina Senate race because I guess Jen and I want to know like maybe your feedback because we were talking about it. Cal Cunningham, who is running for Senator as a Democrat, in North Carolina is running against Tom Tillis, the Republican who is sick with COVID. He was at the White House oh, Amy Coney Barrett <laughs> super spreader events. And now Kyle Cunningham, it was released that he had some inappropriate tax, some sexy tax sexting and, and maybe an affair that hasn't been fully confirmed yet. And so now that is a very, very close race. And why does it matter? Does it matter? How do we feel about this? So I think it's disappointing. I mean, this was one of absolutely the races that we were going to be able to flip. You know, North Carolina looked to be like the number one pickup. I mean, um, Cunningham, you know, he's a lawyer. Like he has the look, he has the background on paper. Everything's great. Doing really well. Raised $28 million. I mean, y'all, that's a lot of money. And then, dun, 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 these texts come out. Now, they are calling him and saying they're sexting, but they're they're pretty like Disney sexting. They're kind of tame. I mean, I want to kiss you. I want to, you know, whatever. It's It didn't, I mean, I, I, like you, just felt disappointed. You know, it's not as bad as maybe, I don't know if you remember John Edwards, Senator John Edwards, who I had the biggest crush Again, on. Again, North Carolina. And that guy, to me, it was like, it broke my heart because, I mean, he was a real piece of shit. I mean, he was cheating on his wife who had cancer and then there was like a baby out of wedlock and it was National Enquirer that broke Enquirer that broke that story. All right. So let's move it back. Because okay. That's not cunning. I know. Right? But John Edwards, he was so cute. Anyway, um, it's a tough thing, right? Because it's this whataboutism of, all right, so maybe he has a family and he's like on a, put on a pedestal as this great guy, but here he's maybe cheating on his wife. And is this a big deal anymore when you have a president who has over a dozen sexual assault allegations and multiple affairs and paying off a porn star? Well, that, that's part of the problem Allegedly. is that Republicans have are using it, obviously, basically saying that it undermines his morality and his integrity. But then again, that's just it. It's it's really on the other side in terms of the Republican Party. You know, it's kind of 
not a good thing necessarily to throw rocks in glass houses. I'm also like, couldn't you just have kept it in? I mean, are you that horny? Seriously, I don't know. You're running a campaign, Jen. You're running your law practice. You're a mother of two, uh, three dogs. Do you have time? I don't even have time to text, (laughs) much less sext with anybody, including my husband. So it's one of those things where I'm not quite sure what's going on up there, but you know, he has apologized. He's dealing with it with his family. It is a private thing, but clearly it has thrown a wrench into a race that looked like we were kind of Democrats were sailing to victory. So, so we'll see at the end of the day, you know, where do voters kind of come down on this? Well, this brings us to our sure Jan moment of the week. Sure Jan. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. It kind of dovetails nicely with the Cunningham stuff. It kind of does. And we're going to give that sure, Jan to Fox News. Now, Pete Buttigieg has been getting booked on Fox News, which I think it's great. I would like to see more Democrats go on Fox News because, look, they have a huge audience. And they should be giving their point of view if you can get booked. But he went on there before the vice presidential debate and he got asked a question about flip-flopping on positions and here's how it went. Going back to my original question about the things that, you know, when you run for president, you have a record on all of these issues. And then we've seen that record and her stance on them changing over time. So there's no doubt she's going to be asked about that tonight. Can you give us some insight into what she might say to justify why she was for Medicare for all then and is not for it now, for example? Well, there's a classic parlor game of trying to find a little bit of daylight between running mates. And if people want to play that game, we could look into why an evangelical Christian like uh, Mike Pence wants to be on a ticket with a president caught with a porn star or how he feels about the uh, uh, immigration policy that he called unconstitutional before he decided to team up with Donald Trump. Folks want to play that game. We we could do it all night. But uh, I think what most Americans want to hear about is are our families going to be better protected than they have been by this resident who's failed to secure America in the face of one of the most dangerous things ever to happen to our country. Now, this clip went so viral, people were just losing their damn minds over it. So great, right? Well, you know, people were calling him the goat, the greatest of all time in terms of being a surrogate. I don't think people have ever used that term with a political surrogate for, but, you know, he, he, he did the job. And it was almost as if they were just shocked because there really wasn't a response <laughs> to what he had to say. Well, and it, it goes back to what we were saying with with the North Carolina Senate race. It's just like, look, you can say it's bad, but what's worse? Or it's kind of like when people are asking Biden the question of, are you going to stack the court or not? And how dare he not answer? It's like, well, it. That's like a tiny little pimple on a giant orange face of all the questions that are not being answered, right? I mean, I think Republicans are looking for anything right now to to seize on, and I get it. But at the end of the day, I mean, voters, we know what's going on. I mean, we we probably know too much. We have too much information, and I think we're just kind of, we're tired. (laughs) Okay, so we're... Is the perfect way for us to wrap up. Listen, uh, we're going to leave you with this. Get 
a voting plan. If you don't have it, you need to get it. Also, because this is a voting podcast, y'all should download the new app from the Fulton County Board of Elections. Just search for Fulton Votes. It is on Apple and also for Android. And so available for for each platform, and it will tell you where drop boxes are. It tells you everything you need to know about voting in Fulton County. Great, great tool. And by the way, if you have questions about voting, you can always tweet us at Senator Jen, at Mara Davis, at Podcast Vote, or email us directly at voteherpodcast at gmail.com. We're happy to engage with you as far as like getting your vote out there. Our show editor and producer is Christina Larringer. Podcast cover artist by Terry White. You can see more of his work at, at Padded Life. Our music is courtesy of Terminus Records. Jen, as always, this is great. And we'll talk next week. I can't wait. Early vote is already happening. I hope all of you are getting out and getting your vote on. Do it. We did it. <laughs>